You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Granada House was on the grounds of the Brighton Marine Hospital near the Massachusetts Turnpike. Wallace found it funny that a marine hospital should be nowhere near water. The compound consisted of seven buildings, seven moons orbiting a dead planet, as it is described in Infinite Jest, all leased to various substance abuse groups. Wallace met Deb Larson, the house director. Tall and blonde, she walked with a limp. Drunk, she had fallen down in her kitchen, hitting her head, causing a partial paralysis. Even then, she hadn't stopped drinking. Wallace respected her immediately. She was personable and smart and gave him a link to an old life that was still his present. You could almost see Harvard from the top floor of the building. Recovery facilities tried to control the stress levels of their participants, and one activity that they usually prohibited was school. Wallace had no choice but to call the philosophy department at Harvard and ask for a leave of absence. He was too humiliated to go back to get the vegetable juicer, a gift from his mother that he left in the graduate school offices. D.T. Max is the author of The Family That Couldn't Sleep, A Medical Mystery. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker. His new book is Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, A Life of David Foster Wallace. Thank you for joining me, D.T. Thanks for having me. One thing about David Wallace that becomes clear upon reading this book is that he didn't want people to just read his work. He wanted people to read his work and be changed by what they had read. I think that's absolutely true. Certainly for David, part of the job of writing, of of literature, was to give pleasure. But that was really just the start. You know, when you read Infinite Jest, you're, you're supposed to be changed by it. I mean, you're supposed to come away from it with a different sense of what it is to be human and of, of what your own potentialities are. There's a character in the book, Don Gately, whose sort of courage in the face of physical pain is meant in a way to recall kind of, you know, characters out of Dostoevsky. And the whole idea of the book is that the human will is capable of amazing things. I mean, in the case of the, of the particular story of Don Gately, he ref- he's in a substance abuse program and Alcoholics Anonymous. And he refuses painkillers, even though he's suffering from a gunshot wound. But the larger idea that you're supposed to come away with is that you're able to endure pain if what you're working towards is important enough. One of the things I think that's so striking about this book is the way you create the character uh, of David Wallace. It's just a beautifully crafted character arc, and it's incredibly moving. And I think that you, in a way that's subtle but clear, echo some of the things that we find in David's work, even though they don't seem apparent. For example, one of the things that you come away from reading David's work, even though it's not really obvious, is this kind of yearning. And I think that this book, too, echoes that kind of yearning for a normal life, a a loving, full human life. And this is something that comes back again and again, is trying to figure out and be fully human. I mean, I'm, that's a reading that I'm very, very happy to hear. It's true that, it, I mean, partially, I think one reason that what you're saying uh, may be taking place, this idea that every love story is a ghost story, reads sort of like a narrative of, of a character from David's life, is that David's life and his characters were actually pretty similar. I mean, one of the one of the sort of challenges of the biography, but also one of the rewards of it, was that, you know, David is the last, I mean, most writers, especially when they reach a certain age, what they are primarily is professional writers, and their lives consist essentially of trying to make the words, you know, sing on the page. But, I mean, there's not that much off the page that connects all that directly to their work. David's just, just the opposite. I mean, every struggle that David's characters have, for instance, the struggle for authenticity, the the struggle to stay off of drugs and alcohol, the struggle to find meaning in a media-saturated environment, which was one of David's great, great sort of campaigns. You know, all those find more than an echo in, in David's life. I mean, they, they begin in David's life. Another thing I tried to work, I mean, one of the things in the biography and Every Love Story is a Ghost Story is I tried very hard to avoid the sort of formal accoutrement of biography. In other words, 
usually you write a biography of somebody who, for one thing, one for one thing, has been dead for quite a long time, at least some some number of years, and so a kind of fossilization has occurred around around their reputation and their writing and the facts of their life. But I mean, David was, I mean, David could walk into this room right now and it wouldn't be surprising in the sense that you know he'd he'd be fifty years old. So I tried to write a biography that in some ways approached the quality of a memoir. You know, a biography where what's wonderful about memoir, the reason I love memoirs is there's a certain immediacy to it. It's certainly not comprehensive. And every love story is a ghost story. It doesn't really try to be comprehensive either. It tries to tell a story, just as memoir. Memoir is an attempt to make a story out of one's own life. And, and, and I tried as best I could to make a story out of David's life. And that's absolutely well done. It's just an aching, sad love story about uh, the power of creativity and also the drain of creativity. Right. The, 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 very, the, the very mixed gift of creativity. Uh, I, one of the things I, I really love about this book is the way that you show us uh, David who is brilliant and flawed, uh, tragically flawed. And it's a, it's a classic uh, hero story in many ways. I mean, you're right that he, he does fit this uh, the sort of... Well, I mean, there's this whole thing that's grown up around David Foster Wallace, especially since his death, this idea of St. Dave, you know, this, this, this person who, was, who shows us the way, you know, who can show us a way to a more fulfilled and contemplative uh, and rewarding life, who's able to sort of say no to the temptations of the, of the culture, the media temptations, the, the, the marketing temptations, the you know, the, the, the temptations of fame, drugs, and so on. You know, that wasn't actually Dave's life. And, I mean, if you actually think about most of the really interesting stories of saints that we have, I mean, most saints begin flawed. I mean, a saint who's not flawed doesn't make for a very interesting story because I think that we understand that, that you know, to get to the kind of wisdom that I do feel that David Foster Wallace possessed by the end of his life, you know, you don't get there any cheap way. I mean, there's a wonderful phrase in Infinite Jest, which you sometimes now see on people's T-shirts, and I think people even tattoo this phrase, but it's, the truth will set you free, but not till it's done with you. And with David, you know, the great sadness is that it appeared, I mean, David had such a happy period of his life in the years before he took his own life. It looked like the truth, that the truth was done with him. And, you know, it wasn't. I mean, the truth had one last surprise in store for him. I, as a writer, you're dealing with a character and a situation that is heavily documented. We know quite a bit about him, but it's also you managed to make this feel real and brittle and infuse this narrative, even if you know what happens, with a a, a real tension. And I think that's a, a gift that's hard to find. And I'd like you to talk about how you sculpted and understood the man from within to create that sort of tension that we experience as readers. I, I thought of myself, you know, I am literally David's contemporary. And in working on the book, I often thought of myself as almost literally, you know, walking by David's side. So if David is in the halfway house in Brighton, you know, Boston, and he's frightened by how tough everybody in the house is, and he's amazed that he can't write anymore, you know, and he's wondering if he'll ever write again. I, I literally would imagine what it was like to be there, never to be him, because that always felt to me a gesture of arrogance, but basically to be to be next to him. And, and everything really came out of that sense that I was there, I'm there, I'm Dave, David grows up a kind of ordinary middle-class childhood in Champaign-Urbana in the 60s and 70s. You know, I had an ordinary middle-class childhood. I had it in Manhattan. But still, you know, the, there's a phrase that I always remember, which is one of his friends said that, you know, everybody did everything on bikes. And I did nearly everything on a bike, you know. And, and there's another phrase in the book, which is that it seemed every other person was called Dave. You know, and it's true also in Manhattan in the early uh, 60s and 70s. You know, every other person was called Dave. So every every love story is a ghost story draws some of its, I think, some of its particular qualities from the fact that David and I were so close. Although I should add very clearly here, we never met. I mean, we were we were on parallel 
paths in a certain way. I mean, you have to always allow for the fact that David was, you know, a supersonic transport. So on that level, nobody's on a parallel path. But it, that's not really true. I mean, David lived a very ordinary life. He was an academic gypsy, really. He, he took different teaching jobs. He was always wondering about how to make enough money so he could do his writing. He had problems with women that are certainly familiar enough to me. And maybe some of the particular energy of, of every love story is a ghost story may come from the, that kind of similarity, that 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 um, quality we have of being contemporaries. You know, it's very unusual if you think about it to have the opportunity to write a biography of your contemporary. I mean, unless you're 70, most most artists, creative people you know, really not reach the point where a biography is in order. Um, and so for me, there was a, a really funny, strange opportunity to write a biography about somebody who listened to the same music I listened to, who read the same books that I read. There's a there's a moment early in every love story as a ghost story where, where I had a I was in possession of a lot of different documents that had been given to me by some of David's family and some of his friends and, and an archival material. And in one he lists he lists the, the 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 books that he the dirty books in his parents' library they loved to pull down and read. You know, I think one of them is Fanny Hill and another one might be um Story of O or something. And I mean those books were in my parents' library. It was just the the, the overlap is remarkable. You made a decision, and you talked. You just spoke about this a little bit, to never inhabit David's mind, to never show us things right. from his perspective. And and I thought that was a really good decision, and I'd like you to talk about making that decision. What I decided actually wasn't, I think, exactly that I would never show things from his perspective, but I tried to use the kind of, you know, in every love story is a ghost story, you're Basically, the feel is meant to be something like a novel. And I mean, I mean, people always say, oh, it reads like a novel. You know, book reads like a novel. And all they really mean is it's exciting. So that's separate. But what a novel does, you know, generally speaking, is it gives you a partial view of another person's mind. And it's really the writer's choice, the novelist's choice, what to allow you to know that his, char his or her character is thinking. I think it's called indirect third-person narration. And that's really what I do in Every Love Story is a Ghost Story. So... Often, you know, I'll tell you what David is, is thinking, say that he's afraid to be at Granada House um, or that he worries he'll never write again. You know, and this is coming to me mostly from his letters. I mean, David's letters are not always truthful on a literal level, but I think they always contain an emotional truth. And then the rest of the information might have come from my interviews. I probably was in touch with 200 people who knew David. So I really covered the waterfront. Um, and from that background and that basis, I was able, you know, sometimes to tell you with some confidence, you know, that David felt this or David felt that. But I never pretended I knew everything. And I certainly never, I never try to say that this is all that he was feeling. And in that sense, I think, you know, I really did learn a lesson from fiction. I mean, from David's fiction, among other people, that, that you can create a character out of, out of partial, that a character doesn't come out of completeness. A, a, a character comes out of a combination of knowledge and, and uncertainty. I mean, one thing, for instance, that I never really knew the origin of, although I do now, is is the title I gave the book, Every Love Story is a Ghost Story. David writes at the bottom of letters at different times in his life, and I was struck by the fact that he would write a letter to a professor when he's a graduate student at the University of Arizona, and in that letter, he would just at the bottom write, you know, Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, and he would put it in quotes and attribute it to Virginia Woolf on the Merv Griffin show, for instance. So that seemed like David at postmodern play, um, and then, but but it appears other places in his fiction. It's, it's um, it's in the Pale King as a phrase, and so, I loved you know as I was working on the book having a title, whose final meaning I didn't really know, and I thought you know probably I was giving it exactly the same amount of thought that that David Foster Wallace gave it. You know he liked it, it worked for him. In some way he was still trying to figure out what why he liked it even ten years after he'd first met the phrase. Now, now, as it happens, as since the book was published, I've traced the title to a letter that Christina Stead, the, the wonderful novelist who wrote The Man Who Loved Children, put it, he wrote, she wrote it in a letter to someone in the mid-70s, mid and it actually turns out, I just found out this week, to be the title of a story that she wrote. Um, but it's a story that was never published, and I don't know that it was ever actually, that a draft actually exists, but the title of the story exists in the National Library of Australia. So it was kind of a fun chase, but it didn't really change the big question, which is like, what did this phrase mean to David? Like, it doesn't really seem like a phrase David Foster Wallace would latch on to, but clearly he did. To me, one of the things I thought that was so interesting uh, about that phrase was that 
he would kind of collect phrases and words and create his own words. He had his own whole descriptive universe that was kind of a parallel universe. And I think that describes a lot of his fiction too. It was it was somewhat, it was to the left and right and up and down from the world we most of us live in. I, I think that that's very true. You know, David was, I mean, he had many, many gifts. He was a very good observer of life. And I saw this particularly in the letters that I read, that he, he could, he could, create a wonderful description. There's a, there's a phrase he uses just, he used to go to movies a lot. Uh, he liked to tell people that, that um, movies were the, were the recreational choice of, of addicts. You know, it was, the, it was the recreation of choice for addicts. Something about the overwhelmingness of the images and the intensity of the experience substituted for him, you know, for the, 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 the sort of place left by his actual previous addiction to marijuana and also to a lesser extent to alcohol. David once in a letter that I that I have described Gwyneth Paltrow as looking like the ghost of a horse, and I just thought that was perfect. I mean, that's just a throwaway line, you know, but it's exactly true. And I, I, can, I can't look at her anymore without you know the movie without without thinking that. I mean, it's a real gift. But it's true that even from a young age, really, you know, Wallace was in love with words, and I think when you're in love with words the way David Foster Wallace was, sometimes words are all there really is. You can see this so many places. I mean, you can see it just in the sort of torrent of words that he looses on, you know, in his nonfiction when he goes on a cruise ship. And he's lonely, you know, and he keeps writing about how sad it is, you know, sad, sad, um, a sad boat on a sad sea full of sad people. But, you know, it's the words that are really alive for him. And it's the words that in a way kind of replace, you know, they replace the unsatisfactoriness of the experience. I don't think David was alone in this as a writer, but... I think he really turned to words in a, in, with almost a kind of desperation. And touchingly uh, and fittingly, you know, one of the last stories he wrote, the story Good Old Neon, is a, is a suicide story. It's about a young man named Neil who's in many ways, you know, indistinguishable psychologically from David. He's, a, he's a, a, an ad salesman who, who, who despises himself for his own success. Anyway, he, he's sort of driving on a landscape that's familiar as the, the landscape of Bloomington, Illinois, where David lived, to, to, he's going to commit suicide off a bridge, I think he's going to drive his car off a bridge. Um, and the last line of the story is, is the phrase, not another word. But the best part is that there is another word, because there's also a footnote or an endnote that follows it, which is full of further sort of examination of all the questions that have been raised in the story. So, you know, it's not another word, and yet there is another word. I mean, the story actually has, sort of has two endings. You must have found yourself underneath a sea of footnotes and letters and documents and versions and revisions and handwritten papers. Talk about how long it took you to find them, organize them, and start to wrap your brain around how you were going to do this. It seems like an almost insurmountable task. Well, David David left fewer drafts. I mean, it, it was plenty of work, but what David didn't leave was a ton of drafts, especially of his earlier work. But even Infinite Jest, I mean, there are some drafts of Infinite Jest that are at the Ransom Center in Texas, but you never really see David just starting out with on, on any fictional project. I have no idea even now whether David simply wrote incredibly clean first drafts because he had that kind of brain, or whether there were earlier drafts that he would you know, work off of and, and tear them up and discard them. So a certain kind of forensic work, which really isn't my gift anyway, was not was really not in the cards. But there was a great, there's an enormous amount of published writing. I mean, you know, Infinite Chest is 1,100 pages, and I wasn't going to just read it once for the book. You know, I had to read it twice for, for the book alone, and probably should have read it more. This is all, I mean, key to understanding David is this, is this large sort of body of published work. And for me, really, you know, the, the place I really dug in and, and made my home was in all these letters that people would give me. And, you know, there's no real pattern to when people will share letters. You know, David had died quite recently, and there was a lot of grief surrounding his death, as, as there still is. But, you know, for some people, that grief involves sort of sharing their memories, and sometimes sharing their memories included sharing their letters. I mean, I loved... David's letters. I, I just found like nobody's letters are as good as David Foster Wallace. Is he really, I mean, you know, David Foster Wallace had a lot of voices. He had his published voice of his fiction. He had that kind of, that voice of his nonfiction of, 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 of you know, a supposedly fun thing. 
and a visit, a ticket to the fair. You know, stories where there's a kind of Woody Allen-ish version of David who's a little bit, I think he once said, schmuckier than he is in real life, recording everything, you know, with a kind of neurotic gaze. But the letters have a whole third voice, or maybe I'm up to a fourth voice. Um, the, I mean, the letters are intimate. They're wonderfully alive. The language is never less than superb. Um, all of David's grammatical obsessions are present in the letters. I mean, they're written so beautifully that you would think that they had always been meant to be published. But of course, they were just throwaway work. You know, David often wrote his letters when he was not writing well. And it was kind of an act almost of self-disgust to put all this energy and this beauty into something that he reasonably enough assumed he'd never see again. So it was, I mean, it was a large universe of written material. But I think one thing that happened to me is that David is always, you know, so totally and quintessentially himself. I mean, it was a completely absorbing task. And I would take it to bed with me. At night, sometimes I could, I thought I could sort of hear the letters talking, you know, in the other room down the hall. But it was... David, in some ways, is easy to know and in some ways impossible to know. And somewhere in there, you know, is the David Foster Wallace of, of every love story is a ghost story. Uh, uh, somebody who, who I think you do feel you know, but you don't feel that he's, that I treat him, I, I hope, like, you know, a butterfly who's sort of pinned to the mat and examined. He's still, he's still meant to be alive, in a sense, in the book. He's a Schrodinger's cat of writers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it really shouldn't surprise us how brilliant he was in a sense, who he was. His parents, I mean, he's the perfect child of his parents. Because they were both, you know, talented academics. Yeah, he was a son of a philosopher and, and, a, and a, a wordsmith. I mean, an English teacher, I mean, it seems like... Yeah, more than English, I mean, really a professor of, of English and a kind of grammar expert. I mean, a popular grammar expert. Sally Wallace wrote a book really for foreigners called Practically Painless English, and in practically painless English, I, I mean, I swear you hear David's voice. I mean, clearly, there's certain kind of humorous voice, maybe of the incandenza sections of Infinite Jest or, or Broom of the System. That voice is very much present in Sally's grammatical instructions. You know, and, and so while it's true, I mean, he came from a very, a very intelligent family. I don't know it's true that he came from a family any more intelligent than, you know, tens of thousands of academic brats. Uh, and he wasn't even that extraordinary until I'd say sort of late in high school is when David really begins to sort of take off. I mean, before that, he's a clever kid. He's a talented kid. English teachers love him. He's a bit of a handful. But I don't know that anyone would have suspected. You know, what was missing really wasn't, I mean, creativity. It was this intense will that appears in David as he gets older, this absolute, this sort of, I mean, David was in, enormously competitive. And that competitiveness, I think, serves him for a time very well. But that's, I think, in a lot of ways, what what rockets David to the top. I mean, you know, he, he isn't his valedictorian in high school, um, or which by which logic, I mean, he could not have graduated at the top of his class. One, one person said he was seventh in a class of, I mean, it's a big school, but maybe it was 500 or something. So, I mean, that's, that's great. But, you know, there were six others. But by the time he graduates Amherst, which is, you know, five years later, and he's actually had two breakdowns in the interim, you know, David graduates with 10... 10 honors, 10, I mean, he's summa cum laude, he graduates with 10, like, I don't know the exact phrase for them, but at Amherst and older schools, you know, there are awards you get. You get the, you know, Bancroft Snodgrass Prize for Oratory, you know, or the, I mean, you know, they're just all these weird awards that you don't know about unless you're good enough to get them. I never even heard about them until I found that David was sort of sopping them up by the, by the sponge full. So by the time he finishes Amherst, you know, he is, He's a he's he's a phenom. I mean, he's entered a different a different universe, and and I think paradoxically and interestingly, his entry in that different universe comes comes with all these mental I mean, with all the psychiatric problems that that he would. I'm not saying that they cause them. I would say not, but they they run hand in glove. The psychiatric problems and David's creativity are hand in glove. Talk about exploring that one of the things i think that this book does very well is to show us how someone can be both brilliant and flawed and have all these kind of problems and insecurities at the same time and you and make use of them sometimes to to overcome them it, it this goes back to the character in infinite jest who goes forth in the face of great pain. Right. I mean, 
it, it's a great it's a, it's it is a great truth of David's life, and I think one reason that people care so much about David. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, but one of the simplest reasons is I think I think David was dealt a fairly bad hand, and made a lot of it. You know, I mean, he's even in high school. David Foster Wallace has some fairly severe um, anxiety ailments. And by the time he gets to college, I mean, on some level, he's a mess. I mean, you know, he, he two breakdowns. He draws from college twice. And he's never, I mean, he, he eventually is t- treated pretty successfully with an antidepressant, but he's never well. I mean, he's never really well. Uh, and yet this person carrying all this baggage, and we're not even talking about the addictions that he had, which I think were connected to the psychiatric issues, but th- this this person, this, you know, this, this man who's been, you know, fairly beaten down by his own inner state, you know, manages to produce Broom of the System when he's, what, 23? Infinite Jest, he's, he publishes when he's, I think, 33. And then he goes on from there to, you know, brief interviews with hideous men and all the kind of enjoyable nonfiction and a, and a very precocious math book. I mean, I think any book, any technical book on the history of infinity would be precocious, no matter how old you are when you write it. You know, so I think a lot of people rightly who have themselves been been you know i mean he's become kind of a patron saint for 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 people who have significant creativity and significant mental energy but but who find life difficult either for you know biological reasons you know depression anxiety i mean these things come from so many sources but you know if you're uncomfortable in this culture and you're really whip smart you know then david foster wallace is is for you and and you see this i mean i was a bit amazed again and again by the extent to which readers take David to their, not just to their hearts, but to their skin, because I keep running into people with David Foster Wallace tattoos. There, there was one woman, I believe, who had tattooed the date she started Infinite Jest on her arm and the date she finished Infinite Jest. And I was just so floored by that. You know, as, as the biographer of most writers, you ought to be the most passionate, most committed, most most gaga person in the room about about your writer i mean that's the natural state of the biographer you should know more and you should care more and like every bit of david david once um john franzen was telling david he was going to go see don delillo for dinner and david who had never met delillo and was in awe of him begged franzen to come back with a with a sugar packet with just a little bit of as he said delillo's sebum on it You know, so as the biographer, you should be the person like who wants a you know who's obsessed with the sebum of your subject. Well, I am, but I sure don't find myself alone out there. And and I you know there are certainly there are certainly readers of Infinite Jest who know more about the novel than I do. I mean, the people read it over and over and over again, and and there are people who who I also feel have in a, an equally valid if different um, take on David as a creative person. You know, there's been I mean. Look, nobody can live up to the label of Saint Dave. You know, that that just wasn't going to happen. But the fact that people identify so strongly with, with, with David, I think, is is in part the result of how much he identified with them. So, you know, it wasn't just a one-way street where they wanted uh, his sebum. He, you know, he wanted theirs. I mean, it's, 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 it's a love match, um, you know, on difficult terrain that... that that David Foster Wallace has made with all these readers, and, and not just readers. I mean, they're, they are readers of his, but they're also just kind of people sharing the planet or who shared the planet with David. I mean, I remember right after David's death in 2008, reading online somebody say that, that, that you know, this world felt less safe without David on it. It was that kind of branching communication and commitment among individuals who didn't otherwise know each other. I mean, that that's... That, it's a really kind of an internet. I mean, it was it was a non... The, the response to David was as intimate as the internet makes it, but David himself really wasn't very interested in the internet. In this book, you do a, a wonderful job of showing us kind of the cultural and literary landscape that David inhabited and his reaction to it, which was he everything that he came into contact with, he seemed to kind of go against it. He, he was well, first he naturally a skeptic. <laughs> well, he absorbs it first. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, David's, David Foster Wallace's relationship to what went before him is one of acute anxiety. The New York Review of Books had a very good um, piece on him, I think, after the publication of Brief Interviews with Hideous Men. And I think the title of it was the, was, um, it was, uh, the Panic of Influence. 
you know, playing off of Harold Bloom's The Anxiety of Influence. So David was a a wholesale gobbler up of other people's styles, primarily, you know, Thomas Pynchon, Don DeLillo, to a lesser extent, extent, the novelist, Argentine novelist Manuel Puig, um, but he'd take little little bits from everybody. I mean, there's a there's a small section of his story, Westward: The Course of Empire, which which is seven lines from a Cynthia Ozick novella. So, but it's also true that once David had David was like somebody who would binge on a Sunday and then be angry at himself for having eaten all those sweets. Once once he'd absorbed these writers, really with the exception of Delillo, he would pretty much spit them out and begin to move past them. Um, and somewhere in the tension between desperately wanting to write as well as, say, John Barth uh, and as imaginatively as Thomas Pynchon and wanting so desperately much to be his own person and break through, break through to his own style, you get, I mean, you get his own style. I mean, Infinite Chest, although certainly there's a certain aspect of its inventiveness, sure, you could trace it to Pynchon uh, and maybe also to DeLillo, uh, maybe the style of conversation. There's, certain, there, there's one scene in the novel that, David felt was so close to DeLillo's book End Zone that I think his first letter to DeLillo, it's very typical of David, who was so guilt-ridden. His first letter to Don DeLillo, David Foster Wallace asked for permission, really after the fact, because he'd already written it, to use the scene from End Zone in the, in the uh, eschaton scene in Infinite Jest. Oh, and, and DeLillo told me that you know, he readily gave it because he saw that what David was doing with the material was completely different. But somewhere in this whole cycle of, of absorption and, and, and um, you know, vomiting out, I guess, um, David found his own voice, and it's that remarkable. I mean, a David Foster Wallace sentence is instantly recognizable, you know, much as a Salinger sentence was or a Hemingway sentence. And I think that's an incredible accomplishment. You know, there's a, there's a lot of writing going on now. It's a lot harder to find a way to write that people aren't writing, I think, than, than it once was. I mean, we're awash in MFAs, we're awash in published novels, we're awash in nonfiction. Yet David, you know, out of that, I mean, out of the kind of complexity of his mind and the, and the odd way that his mind was able to sort of scale both the most esoteric heights, but also, you know, was literally addicted to pop culture, um, because David always said his biggest addiction was to television. You find the David Foster Wallace style, and although by now it's been imitated by, you know, I mean, thousands of David Foster Wallace acolytes. You know, you, it's hard to remember just how surprising it was when he first wrote in that style. Talk about some of his, the influence of low-brow pop culture in our mediated environment, how that percolates through his work into something much more powerful and interesting. You know, it, it lives, pop, pop culture lives an interesting life in, in David Foster Wallace's writing because on, on the one hand, he did absorb it, but he also saw it as an addiction. His first novel, The Broom of the System, actually is the one that probably most kind of genially partakes of pop culture. There, there's a, you know, there's a there are various sort of, I mean, it was derivative of Thomas Pynchon, but he uses some of the energy of, of pop culture, of pop culture plots and, and, Gilligan's Island and, you know, just various kind of tropes of pop culture. You know, it feels feels like a book that's surfing, surf, surfing on the pop culture. But that doesn't last very long for David because soon he's writing Girl with Curious Hair. And, and there's one story, for instance, which is a fictionalization of a, of a, a woman who's, who's a, uh, winning and becoming the great champion on Jeopardy. But you know, although Alex Trebek is in there, and, and, you know, I hadn't really realized this, but today I was just happened to be watching some TV at the gym, and Alex Trebek is now the spokesman for an insurance company. And it was just so weird. I just had this moment where I thought, you know, what would David have thought of this? Because he was so, inter- you know, Alex Trebek is so beautifully portrayed by David in this story, Little Expressionless Animals. It's an absolutely wonderful story. So by the time you get that David Foster Wallace gets to Girl with Curious Hair, these stories that he writes in the late 80s, he's basically pretty much like you, you sense a hostility to pop culture. And what's going on, I think, and it, and it really bears fruit in Infinite Jest most of all, is that David began to see pop culture as distorting and injuring us. It was part of this great media saturation. So he no longer, you know, when he was very young, he loved it the way you, you know, his sister told me that she never saw anyone with a need for TV as deep as David's. I mean, David was someone who would watch hour after hour of television. But 
by the time he's a uh, you know a full-fledged writer and an independent thinker, pop culture is a lot of ways really the enemy. And what he what he fears in pop culture is its ability to sort of seduce us into being insensate. Its ability to make us forget that we have a responsibility to ourselves and to others to be more than the, than the kind of you know dulled recipients of this of this you know of this soup that's being ladled out to us night and day and so pop culture really becomes part of becomes the enemy although that's true it's also true that david never stopped liking music and in fact some of the music that he liked when he was writing infinite jest or shortly after includes singers like alanis morissette and enya i mean you know david wasn't wasn't What's interesting about David, what I love about David, is he's not relentlessly searching for the sincere and the authentic the way one wants to think of him. I mean, there's a comment I also thought of about David today, which is, I think it's either in a letter or maybe it's in one of his interviews, where David tells, somebody says to David, um, you know, that, that he bought a copy of Infinite Chest at a used bookstore, and David's response, you know, is not, you know, drink deep from the well. His response is, don't ever tell an author you bought his book used. <laughs> you know so that's great i mean i that that quality of um is it the oscar wilde line about being in the gutter looking at the stars i mean that that's that's david i mean that's that's where the art draws its power from you know one of the things that uh he's he said and i think this is this is pretty uh a central to who he was that without literary theory writers were just entertainers and and uh, I think that this is also um, part of, you know, the way you built this biography. You built this this life of David Foster Wallace as a piece of literature, not just a piece of nonfiction. And I'd like you to kind of talk about uh, finding that for yourself within the life of this man who made it a central part of his own life. I didn't really work out of any particular theory you know i mean david does say early in david's life he does talk about how i mean he his test of the other david was fairly unpleasant as a young man probably not quite as unpleasant as he chose to say he had been but he was fairly unpleasant and he used to go up to the other mfa students at the university of arizona where he was getting his, his graduate degree and, and he would say he would ask them if they'd ever heard of derrida and if they'd say no he'd say well how can you call yourself a writer but later in life, he's the opposite. Really, if you know, if you've heard of Derrida, he doesn't want to hear from you. He doesn't. He doesn't. You know, he's either absorbed this theory or again maybe spat it out. But he, he's very insistent. One of the reasons that he, late in life, goes to Pomona College to teach and leaves Illinois State University is that there are no graduate students at Pomona, and so nobody to go around slinging the big names like Saussure and and Derrida, the big theorist names. I I wrote out of my. I mean, I wrote out of my kind of sense of the book I wanted to read, you know. I mean, there's nothing... I mean, David Foster Wallace had a life that lends itself to narration. I, I might have taken a different tact if I was dealing with somebody for who, whose, whose passions and preoccupations and literary output were more, you know, were further apart. But there was a way in which David and his obsessions and David and his literary obsessions track very closely, which sort of invited, you know, we've talked about it a little bit, but sort of invited treating him as if I was, you know, by his side. There was no conscious decision really about what to leave out or what to put in. It was always, you know, it was always what felt significant, meaningful. For instance, I mean, he goes on a trip with John Franzen to um, early in their friendship, which was one of these sort of competitive kind of, um, David Foster Wallace refers to it, refers to them in a letter to Franzen as, best of friends and lit com and lit combatants, you know, literary combatants. Uh, early in this trip, they're driving to Swarthmore, and they've never really spent any time together before. And, I mean, I've, I've been in that situation, again, knowing a little bit about what it is to be 23 years old in that situation in that year. You know, it's actually he's older than I, maybe, maybe closer to, um, to 30. You know, the one detail that really stuck out was that John Franzen told me he was amazed at how much it was raining while they were driving, and he was amazed at how much wiper fluid David Foster Wallace used. <laughs> so, I mean, a lot was going on in that scene. I, I might have spent a lot of time trying to sort of go into the details, because they also use that as a chance to discuss their theories of literature with each other. And that's in the book. But it seemed to me that in a lot of ways what was more 
special and remarkable about that moment really is a sort of novelistic detail, if you will, which is, you know, because I think actually that, that thing about wiper fluid extends to their work. You know, you, you could say that much as Franzen admired Wallace's fiction, like he probably thought there was an excess of wiper fluid in, in Infinite Jest, you know, that they had such different talents. And John Franzen's talent is much more, you know, is much more orderly. It's much, it partakes more, I think, of a sense of things needing to be in their proper places. David's tricky because things need to be in their proper places, but it doesn't look that way at first. It's a kind of careless caring that he uses in his writing. And so for me, that moment with the two of them, actually, I mean, I'm becoming more and more fond of it as we talk about it. I didn't really give it much thought when I put it in the in every love story is a ghost story. But, you know, it does come to stand in a little bit in a novelistic way for the difference between the the way that they wrote. It's interesting in this book, too, to see the way you show the changes in the literary landscape and the, the cultural landscape and to see the competitiveness and the uh, engagement of these young writers, both between one another, they will look up to DeLillo and, and Pynchon. And I think that... Uh, creating this kind of tangled web of influence and cooperation and competition and advice giving is is really uh, gives a fantastic picture of how writing is produced in the United States and ultimately with David's books how much of an effect it has on the people who really understand how to read it. You know, one interesting thing about David's writing, I think, um, or about this community that I'm writing about is is that unlike most fiction writers in America, they weren't really quite so yoked to the university as writers tend to be, at least not in the period where David writes Infinite Jest. I mean, he is an academic gypsy, and he does wind up teaching for the rest of his life. But during the moment, I think particularly that you're thinking about when they're all sorting themselves out, and they're in their early 30s, and there's, you know, there's, there's Rick Moody, and there's Franzen, and there's David Foster Wallace, and there's uh, Jeff Eugenides. You know, I mean, basically, it's a male, it's a little fraternity. It's a fraternity of hyper-educated white men. It's certainly not all the literature that was being written at the time. But th- these, are, William Volman's another member of this fraternity. He calls them great white males. <laughs> right, right. Great, great white males are over six feet. I think that's, someone once asked <laughs> Wallace what they had in common. Another time, actually, there's a letter that uh, the editor, Brad Morrow, gave me where Wallace suggests Morrow uh, was the editor of, is the editor of Conjunctions magazine and Wallace writes him a letter suggesting that they do an issue showing how little <laughs> he and Eugenides and Moody have in common. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's not an issue they ever got off the ground, but I like the, I mean, there's a lot going on in this group of writers and Mary Carr is a part of this group too, for sure. And there are other writers who I think are connected, but maybe less obviously, writers like you know, Ann Patchett, conceivably. At any rate, they all, they all are in the same world with one another, and they're all um, you know, socializing with each other. And they know each other in a way that actually, I think, surprised me how much time... You know, one of the problems with being a biographer of writers in America is basically once writers reach a certain modest level of acclaim because they have no other way to make a living, they become university professors. And that's fine for them. I mean, it's necessary, and we all want food on the table and clothes on our babies. But what it does is it's, it atomizes our literary community. You know, it breaks it up into little components. And these writers don't really get to know and talk with each other. And I think, wonderfully, Wallace, Franzen, Carr, and so on, you know, they really did hang out with each other. I mean, it's kind of like Paris in the 20s in its own slightly misshapen way. I mean, Syracuse in 1990s, maybe hardly Paris in the 20s, but but allowing for, you know, a difference in the beauty of, of the backdrop, it, it was. And, and these, I want to call them kids because they feel like kids to me at this point. You know, these kids are really learning from each other rather than learning from textbooks, rather than learning from, you know, from from dead writers. They're learning from each other and, and they're competing with each other. There's a wonderful letter. You know, David for all his mental difficulties, never stopped keeping an eye on the competition, you know, in, in a way that, that was seems incredibly, I don't want to say grounded, but, I mean, he, sure, he, David tries to take his own life in, I think, 1988 because there's been a lot of things going on, and he, he's, um, 
anyway, he's, he's gone off of his antidepressant. And what happens then is he, um, you know, he recovers through electroshock treatment and uh, goes back on his antidepressant. Anyway, one of the first letters I have, well, one letter he writes from the you know, intensive care unit is to his agent, promising her that he's going to he's going to get some good work together and soon. I mean, from to, to, from the intensive care unit. But also shortly after, you know, his book, Girl with Curious Hair, his short story collection has gone through a kind of hellacious series of legal reads and it's been effectively canceled at one publisher and then his editor moves. So it's finally coming out. I mean, it's really the book, it's it's the book that, that almost really killed David. You know, it's the book that he just, you know, that, that all his literary hopes were riding on it. He'd been this hotshot writer and suddenly he found himself in sort of the seventh circle of publishing hell. Anyway, Volman has a book that's coming out you know, almost simultaneously. And one of the kind of first letters that David writes that I have, he's complaining to somebody, you know, he really, really admires Volman's writing. And David, when he was de- depressed or knocked off balance, sometimes sort of overly praised people who he admired, le- you know, when he was more closed, when, it, when, you know, in these sort of teachable moments, he gave himself too fully anyway. He considered Volman sort of the genius of the millennium and felt that his own writing was hack-like, but in this letter what he says is, you know, that his book, Girl with Curious Hair, is coming out and, and is going to be dwarfed by that monster Volman's short story collection, uh, I think it's Rainbow Stories, coming out a month later. So he's already thinking about, you know, reviews and like how Volman's short story collection is going to sop up all the review space that Girl with Curious Hair should have gotten. Again, this example of this incredible grounding that he has alongside the, the David Foster Wallace that we know that we think we know. I mean, one of the pleasures of any biography, but certainly of writing every love story as a ghost story, was finding that David often had two feet on the ground. Early on, first time he publishes Broom of the System, that wonderful novel that he publishes, that he wrote in college. He writes a letter to a, to a college friend of his who's friends with the editor of the Alumni Magazine, asking his friend to put a mention into the Alumni Magazine while not, not telling the editor of the magazine that it was David's own idea that he do so. <laughs> So it's just like this, you know, it, it's touching. I mean, it's it's the thing, it's the stuff of human life. That's one of the things I think that makes this such a book, such a powerful arc and such an enjoyable book to, to read is that it really does have, it's the stuff of life. And, it's, and even though we're talking about a man who was clearly a genius and also um, often very mad, it's something that I think all of us can relate to. And I found myself thinking, you know, that here's this guy who's all over the map and creates these amazing things, yet you think, you think, boy, he's a guy just like me. And that's... That or, 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 or even more of a, even more of a guy than, than most of us. I mean, when David, David's, David's feet, David's boots are good and muddy, you know, he, I mean... But but what's important, I think, is is that this extends to his work. You know, I, I don't think I would be so interested in kind of small details of David's life if you don't see his own interest in infinite jest. There's so many beautiful details, you know, in his writing, so many, so many perfectly observed moments. And you don't think that David, you know, David had that kind of Luftmensch quality where you don't think he would notice things. But, for instance, one way that he and he, he meets Karen Green, the woman he's, he marries, you know, towards what would turn out to be the end of his life, he meets her in one way that he kind of um, enchants her is he writes this letter to her where he minutely details everything about her house down to the, the paint-splattered shoes uh, that, you know, that she's used for her painting because she's an, an artist. And that was very striking to me because I was always forgetting that if you read David's nonfiction, you know, it's his ability to observe combined with that, of course, that, that massive inventive brain was really an unusual combination. You know, he really saw people. The first, the first line of Broom of the System, his first novel, I think it's, it's a truism, and it sounds sort of like something kind of Jane Austen, but it's something like, is a truth universally acknowledged, to turn it into a Jane Austen quote, is a truth universally acknowledged that pretty girls have very ugly feet. <laughs> and you think, you know, he spent all this time looking and looking at people. He looked hard, you know, he, 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 and there's another woman whom he began dating, um, in college. And the way that he sort of captured her was that he noticed that she had one eyelash that was pointing sort of the wrong direction. <laughs> That's probably how he put it to her too. You know, 
even eyelash that's pointing in the wrong direction. So details were really important to him too, and they were and they were they were lambent. You know, they were alive for David, and I tried to make them alive. You know, I mean, it really wasn't for me. It's naturally how I write anyway, but I really wanted them. I wanted that kind of little detail. You know, the, the wiper fluid, and there's many other such details to try and hop out at you in a way that maybe is not. You know, wouldn't be typical of a typical perhaps. Um, you know, academic biography, although I think that's kind of a straw man. Biographies can be effective in a number of different forms. This was the way I had to write because it was David Foster Wallace, and, you know, he had such a strong style. The last thing that I ever wanted to do was sound like David, but fortunately, I think he and I approached the same problems of writing. We approached similar problems of writing from different angles. You know, David was always trying to figure out how to deal with the muchness of the world. He, he writes a letter to a friend that I was given um, where he goes to the adult entertainment awards where dirty movies get, you know, get get the equivalent of Oscars. I forget what they actually given. And he writes that he can't cover it, that nonfiction is hard because there's so much. And I, I feel that too. I mean, you can't sit in a room without thinking how overwhelming how overwhelming the world is and how overwhelming what you could write about is. But we had different solutions to the problem. For David, it's like choose 20 brilliant details and string them together in a sentence that defies scanning but is nevertheless perfect. For me, it more often is to choose a single detail and to leave it in a place where the reader can find it, you know, like a chocolate chip in a cookie or, or, a, or a little a diamond sort of just buried under the dust of a path. I've been speaking to D.T. Max. His new book is Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, A Life of David Foster Wallace. Thank you for joining me, D.T. Uh, thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.